Welcome to Ridgetop. Uh, my name's Robert, and I'm the lead pastor here. And I know we've been breaking, we've been breaking some rules about Christmas music. Um, so how many of you are like, no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving? Oh, we have quite a few. Okay. Well, sorry if I offended you. Um, I, I have my reasons, okay? It's, it's going to be part of the theme. So um, I want to talk a little bit before we get into the meat of the sermon, just why would we even talk about doctrine, right? We're looking at the Apostles' Creed, this old ancient creed from uh, a couple thousand years ago, and uh, why, why do we do this? And uh, part of the reason is, and I want to steal this illustration from uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Um, he says, exploring God, getting to know God is a little bit like exploring and getting to know the Atlantic Ocean. One way to get to know the Atlantic Ocean is to go to the beach, jump in, swim around, and so you know at least a tiny bit of the Atlantic Ocean. But there's a lot more to the Atlantic Ocean than the few hundred yards of your beach, right? And so it's helpful to have a map of the Atlantic Ocean so that you can then go and explore it in an even uh, more thorough and expansive way. And doctrine is like a map. Even the scriptures are like a map. Doctrine is not God, right? Just like a map is not the Atlantic Ocean. But it's sure helpful to have a map to explore the Atlantic Ocean. Just like it's helpful to have doctrine and certainly the scriptures to explore uh, more thoroughly uh, who God is. Another illustration, this, this is not from Lewis and it's used um, many times. I don't know who uh, originated it, but thinking of doctrine as the banks of a river. Um, uh, banks of a river literally make, d define the river, right? If you don't have banks of a river, you have a swamp. And so you, you need some kind of understanding of who God is and who he's not to help you understand uh, God. That said, the river is incredibly dynamic and mysterious, and there's depths there to, to plummet, right? And so, again, um, similarly... Doctrine is, is not the end, it's just the beginning of, of getting to know who God is. So, so far we've looked at the Apostles' Creed at, at the, the very beginning section, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And that statement, I think a lot of people would agree with. I mean, even some uh, different religions, right? I mean, Judaism and Islam, they, they could get on board with that for the most part. Uh, and a lot of people, just in general, when you do any kind of a, a questionnaire or research about, do you believe in God? I mean, most of the planet says, yes, I believe in God. And most think of God as some sort of almighty, maybe not a father, but uh, a maker, a creator, and so these, these statements that we've, we've looked at before definitely are pretty broad. But today we get into the part of the creed that's distinctively Christian. And this is the part that's about Jesus. So this is the part we're looking at today. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The creed uses the same language of believe that was stated earlier in the section on the Father, um, and we should carry forward all those things that we said about 
Christian belief, that it's more than mere intellectual assent, although it includes that, but it's a reliance upon, a trusting in uh, God. And now in the creed, we're, we're realizing, oh, there's, there's more to God than the Father, and we begin to learn about uh, Jesus Christ, His only Son. So there's some names there that are full of meaning. Jesus, uh, that name literally means uh, Yahweh saves. So Yahweh, one of the Old Testament names for God. And so it's saying that, that Jesus is a Savior, right? And then it says Christ, which literally means anointed one. Um, and it's, it's a phrase that, or a word that was used by the Jews in the first century to talk about the Messiah. We were just singing about Jesus, the Messiah, right? And so the understanding that he is the anointed one, he is the, the messianic king that everyone's been waiting on. And then Lord, which is a title of divinity, that he is uh, Lord uh, and, and God. So not only this, but his only son, right? And the his is referring to God the Father. And so what defines Jesus as the Son first and foremost is relationship with the Father, right? And the Father being called Father first and foremost because of his relationship with the Son. Now later on he'll become our Father through Christ, but in the beginning of, of their, uh, their, the understanding of Father and Son is their relationship with each other. And so this father-son is somewhat like father-son human beings, but also not like father-son human beings. So in some sense, the son is coming from the father, but the son is eternal. So it's not like there was the father and then later the son came around. They are what's called co-eternal, right? But still there's this sense of the son coming from the Father. Sometimes this is stated uh, eternally begotten, right? Jesus wasn't made. Uh, he has always been and uh, is coming from the Father, but in an eternal way. Um, this is what a lot of the, the church leaders in the early church were trying to hammer out. Like, we see it in the Scripture. How do we say it? How do we make sure that we create these banks of the river so we make sure we don't go outside of what the Scripture is saying about God, that there is one God, but there are three persons in that Godhead and that each person is equally God, right? And you're going, my, my mind's blowing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, there's almost so much you can do with human language, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try <laughs> to create some doctrinal statements that help us understand one God, three persons, each person is fully God. The three persons are not just mere modes of God. There's no mixtures of the persons. There's only one God, three persons, and each is fully God. Now, Apostles' Creed doesn't really go down in those weeds too far. Now, later creeds will. Creeds like the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed. You can look those up online and you'll get into some really detailed descriptions of what we've been talking about this morning so far. So let's look at the Son's section, or at least the first part of it. You'll notice it, it is the longest section in the Apostles' Creed. Um, the Christian church is a Christ-centered church. Um, 
we say here at Ridgetop, we are centering on Christ. And partly we, we say that and the church throughout history has said that because if it wasn't for what Jesus did on the cross, we wouldn't have access to the Father. We wouldn't have access to the Spirit. It is through Christ that these other realities are even possible. This is why you have the Apostle Paul saying things like this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, talking about God the Father, with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He, he, it's interesting, right, because he said, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but in that very verse, he talks some about the Father, and he talks a little bit about the Spirit. So it's not that you don't talk about them and explain them and learn about them, but it's centered on Christ, right? I, I, did, I, did, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we're going to look at Luke 1, which is a heavenly announcement about Jesus, right, to, to the Virgin Mary. Again, we, we'll hear these at Christmas time. I think it's interesting to hear these when it's not Christmas time and sing these songs when it's not Christmas time. Because then you start to think about, the, wow, this is like a worship song, right? And, and we look at the scriptures and say, this is not just a cute little story about the little baby Jesus in the manger. Like this, this, is, this is some serious truth about who Jesus is and why it's significant that uh, he is who he says he is. So the sermon is really, who is Jesus and why does it matter? Right? So we'll look at this text and we'll, we'll, we'll pull out of there some of who is Jesus and then we'll talk about why this even matters. So take a look at Luke 1. If, you, if you're not there yet, uh, get there. Who, who's got the, the page number? Luke 1, verses 26 to 37. Anybody got a page number? What's that? 803. 803. Okay, 803. So we'll help, help to follow along. So again, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee from Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Luke's setting the scene, right? He's letting us know there's this angel. Uh, he even gives us his name. It's the angel Gabriel. Uh, angels show up at important times in the unfolding of God's plan, right? And it, it's, they don't show up a lot, but they, but they show up at very important times. Uh, they show up to authenticate what's happening. They show up to clarify What's happening? It's almost as if he's like, I could let humans do this, but I need to get this exactly right. So I think I'll, just, I'll send an angel. <laughs> and so you actually see angels showing up in the, in, in the story of Jesus. You see him show up at Christmas and, and his birth, and uh, you show, see him showing up at Easter. They're going to make sure we're going to get this right. Um, angels are really just this head-on collision between heaven and earth. Where the kingdom of God sort of breaks in to real people, real time, and a real place. 
Luke's a historian, so he's like naming times, places. He's, he's talking about Nazareth, which is not a place you want to be from, all right? There's a little story about uh, one of Jesus' disciples when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this place is not a good place, right? And I, I mean, I grew up in a place that was similarly thought of, um, and, and so it's, it's not a great place to be from. Mary is betrothed, right? A little bit more serious than engagement. Um, it is uh, as committed as marriage, but you're not married. <laughs> you're not in the same house. You're not having sex. But you've got this one-year betrothal period where you're as committed uh, as if you were, you were married. He even mentions the month, right? Again, Luke does this to, to root it in history. Like, this really happened. Real people, real place, real time. And so now we start to get to the message, or at least a little bit of a pre-message here. Uh, verse 28, he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Um, Mary's a little unsure about this angel. Now, she's not struggling with disbelief. Uh, she lives in a very enchanted culture, right? It is, there is no scientific, secular mindset in the first century. Everyone is somewhat superstitious. They believe in angels. They believe in demons. Uh, they believe in all kinds of stuff, right? And so that's not what she's struggling with. What she's struggling with is whether or not this is a good angel or if this angel is bringing some bad news. Because sometimes angels do bring judgment, a message of judgment. Sometimes they bring the judgment itself. And so she's, she's worried, right? And with good reason. And so Gabriel lets her know, I'm a good, it's a good angel visit, not a bad angel visit. And, um, and he's like, don't be afraid. Um, and then here's the message, verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There's a lot going on in that little short message, right? You're going to have a baby. I mean, that's, a, that's big, <laughs> just that. Um, she, she's going to have a baby. That she's she's going to name this baby Jesus, right? We said earlier that means Yahweh saves. He's going to be son of the most high, right? Son of God, uh, which will be reiterated in some uh, later verses. Uh, he will be given his, the throne of David. So this is where you know, oh, he is the Messiah. Like he is going to be in the line of King David. And this is what we've been waiting for. Now think about first century uh, in Israel, they are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They are, they are not in charge of themselves. They're waiting for this king to come and to reestablish them uh, as a nation. And, uh, and so th this, is, this is big. And, and this uh, reign is forever. And he states that twice. Seems like he wants them, her to know, hey, this is a forever kind of a kingly reign. And so Mary hears this, and she's got one question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? <laughs> she knows enough about where baby comes, babies come from. She's like, there ain't no way. I've never had sex. I'm betrothed to Joseph, but we've been doing this 
the, 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 the right way. We, we've not done anything. So there's just no way that I'm going to have a baby. And the angel answers her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, that's a pretty theological answer to her question of where's this baby going to come from. Uh, it's going to come from the Holy Spirit, then described as the power of the Most High. So talking about uh, the Father. It's going to result in a, quote, holy child, and that child will be considered the Son of God. The gist of the angel's message is that she is going to have a child through divine intervention, and that child, in some way, is going to be God. It's going to be divine. That Jesus will be both truly human and truly divine. This is what theologians call the incarnation. If you've been at a Mexican restaurant in Austin and you'd say, I want chili con carne. What does that mean? I want my chili sauce to have meat in it, okay? <laughs> Incarnation, right? That, that, that God is taking on flesh. He's going to be an infleshed human. He doesn't cease to be God when he does that, but he will take on a human nature. Uh, this is what we sing about at Christmas. We just sang about it, right? These lines in this one verse, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, right? Singing about this one who is God but is enfleshed, and we're worshiping this one who is that, and that is Jesus. And so again, these questions that we started with, who, who's Jesus? Why does it matter? Well, the, the short answer who's Jesus is he's truly God and he's truly human. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Um, well, let's think about the truly God first, and we're not going to go too far down this road because I want to talk about the truly human part since we're talking about uh, this part in the creed. But because Jesus is God, he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Um, we just sang, Christ by highest heaven adored, right? Christ the everlasting Lord. Acknowledging Christ is, is divine. Christ is worthy of our worship. Uh, if Jesus isn't God, we should not worship him. If he is God, we must worship him. There's, there's no other alternative that if he is the one true God, that we are to worship him. Uh, the creed says he is Lord. Not only that, he's our Lord. Notice that the creed, most of the creed is I believe this, 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 this. And then every once in a while, you'll see a, a more communal kind of a word like that, our Lord. Um, we, we see Jesus worshiped uh, in the Gospels. Here's one. It's probably my favorite one. Matthew 28. Um, he is resurrected. He's appearing to his disciples. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If Jesus was a mere human prophet, human king, human priest, the minute that they started to worship him, he'd be, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. But he doesn't do that. He, he receives that worship. He receives that worship. You see that throughout um, the Gospels. Um, 
Now, that's, that's one, and that, and that is like the central implication of that Jesus is God. And there, there's more, we could go down that road, but I'm going to go down the human, Jesus' human road a little further. Jesus is human. Um, one of the things that implies is it conveys his favor toward us, God's favor toward us. We're just saying, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, it communicates favor. It communicates his love, his concern for us. Um, it gives us a dignity and a worth, right? For God to become a human being, just, just that says, hey, human beings, I see you as having dignity and worth. Um, there's a, a um, little campaign, it's like an outreach campaign right now called He Gets Us. And uh, they're sp- going to spend, I heard on a podcast yesterday, uh, $1 billion in advertising over the next three years to put these little ads out about He, he Gets Us, talking about Jesus. And the, the, the tagline in there, uh, on, on their website says, Jesus gets our lives because He was human too. Right, that's a little, and so it's like all kinds of things. Like Jesus went to dinner parties, and Jesus one of one of the most creative is at a baseball game. It's like big sign. It says Jesus forgives our errors, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so they're getting at this, uh, the the incarnation, the human side of Jesus. That he that Jesus he gets us. He knows what it's like to be a human being, and and he's come near to us, and it communicates his love, his care, his favor. But that's only, that just scratches the surface <laughs> of, of, of what it's communicating. So uh, another, another thing that it, it does is that him becoming human qualifies him to die in our place to pay for our sin. If, if, if we as sinful human beings need someone to die in our place, which we do, to be a substitute, and that substitute needs to be a perfect substitute, then, then Jesus, dying on the cross, will, will, will have to be uh, preceded by him being a human, dying a bodily death. And so this is, this is such an important piece of Christian doctrine, of understanding Jesus as truly human, so that qualifies him to die uh, on the cross. Um, you know, you get a hint of this in the, in the phrases, mild he lays his glory by Born that man no more may die. Right? Just starting to get at that, like he's, he's, he's being born not just to come near us, which is pretty amazing in and of itself, but in order to, to die in our place so that we don't have to die. Um, related to that, Jesus being human qualifies him to resurrect from the dead and to raise us along with him, right? Um, if he isn't human... He can't die. If he isn't human, he can't raise. Well, that's our gospel. I mean, the gospel is Jesus died, he was buried, and he was risen from the dead. (laughs) And if he's not a human, he he can't do the gospel that we preach, and that is our only hope. Um, We just, you know, saw this in our call to worship, right? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness 
of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul in Philippians 2, being very clear, like he became, he's the form of God, he became a human being and that set him up to be able to die in our place. Not believing in the incarnation really is, is, I don't know if you ever played Jenga, you played, you know? I mean, do you ever start in the bottom blocks and just pull out a couple of bottom blocks? No, I mean, the whole tower would fall. Well, this is what would happen if you took, you said, I don't believe in the incarnation. Jesus is just a human, or Jesus is not a human and he's only divine. You pull those blocks out of the bottom, the whole thing falls. There's no more gospel. There's no more, there's no more perfect substitute. There's, there's no more worship of Jesus. Everything in the Christian faith is absolutely, um, completely dismantled. And so this is why the creed starts the Jesus section with talking about his conception, right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And he, the creed says this before it gets into the cross, before it gets into the resurrection, before it gets into the ascension, because it is the foundation, right? And these really are, the, I think, the primary reasons that the incarnation matters, right? Now, here's a couple of secondary reasons that I think are important, but I do think they're secondary, right? That Jesus taking on a humanity is also a pattern for church life, how we do church life. Um, Philippians 2 is so interesting. It's, it's one of the most beautiful and kind of complete uh, passages about what we might call Christology, right? The study of, of Christ. Um, but the context is church life. And so the verses before this beautiful description of Jesus are these, verse 3 of Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so he, he's pointing to this uh, Christ becoming a human being and his death and his burial and his resurrection and exaltation as a pattern for church life, right? And Jesus is, he's humbled, he's emptied, he's shamed, he's disgraced in order to what? In order to look to our interests, right? In order to meet our deepest need. And the Apostle Paul is like, Church, I want you to love each other like that. I want you to have that pattern in mind of, of Christ coming down from heaven and becoming a human being, dying and rising. Um, he, it, it, it is something that happens only if we take on the mind of our servant, Savior. And we just did a couple of membership classes, and next week we'll, we'll install our first class of church members. This is a big deal. This is a big deal in the life uh, of, of a church. And I kind of think about, you know, membership class and, and this, this kind of um, season in the church, a little bit like a wedding, right? It's, it, it, it's great. It's important. And we, and we want to have some kind of a marker that we're like, okay, we're members now. But then there's the marriage, 
right? And that's what we're going to enter into next <laughs> as members of the church. And we're going to be looking to Philippians 2 as one of our passages to say, okay, this is how we want to do life together. We want to look to the interests of others, of each other um, in the church. Now, not only does uh, Christ's incarnation give us a pattern for church life, but it gives us a pattern for the church mission as well. Um, this, uh, th- this passage from John 20 is Jesus post-resurrection. He's given some instructions to his disciples, and uh, he says this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Okay, so he's kind of pointing them to these realities of the gospel. Um, and he says to them, oh, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, side comment, again, you see the Father and the Son and the Spirit in that little passage. Right? This, is, this is one of the things, doctrine's helpful. And you start thinking about a triune God and thinking about the persons in the Godhead. And then you start reading your Bible and you're like, there they are, they're all in there, Right? And so it's, I think it's incredibly helpful to, to better understand uh, your Bible. So here Jesus is indicating to them that when they think about their sentness as a church, they need to think about the sending of the Son by the Father. Right? That's, I think that's profound. Um, again, talking about emptying himself of his rights and his privileges in order uh, to serve those who are far, far away from God. So it becomes not only a pattern for those inside the church, but it becomes a pattern for the church on mission out in the world, emptying ourselves, pouring ourselves out for the good of others. And so this is why we're planting this church. This is why we're planting this church. Um, there are some good churches in this city and we could all go join one of those churches. And we could do church life. We, we could center on Christ. We could be a part of a small group. We could disciple people. We, we could do all that stuff, right? We don't, we don't need to start a new church to do that. But the reason we want to start a new church is because we want to reach those folks in these neighborhoods around here. And we want to reach the campuses that are around here. And we believe that being in close proximity with those neighborhoods and those campuses is going to help us to do that in a fruitful way. And we want to be sent into those neighborhoods. We want to sent in, into our workplaces, into our college classrooms. We want to be sent into the places of recreation, sent into our neighborhoods, just as the Father sent the Son. And so it informs the way we think about our mission. We're not just here doing church, although we want to do that, and we want to do that well, because I think that's part of how we reach people f- with the gospel, right? They come in here and we're, we're you know, super dysfunctional, not caring for each other. We're not going to reach many people with the gospel. But again, this is not the only reason that we're gathering, right? We're gathering because we believe there's a mission that God has sent us in, uh, into these neighborhoods, campuses, and other places around the city. And I'm encouraged that this is happening, um, I've heard uh, many, many descriptions of conversations that people are having uh, in our church. 
uh, conversations with Lyft drivers, hairstylists, uh, family members, classmates, longtime friends, uh, so many stories of people engaging others with the gospel. So that encourages me uh, that, that we're getting it. Like we're, we're really willing to go out and empty ourselves as Christ did for us when he was sent. Um, and it's not easy. I mean, this is part of the pattern, right? It's sacrifice. It's difficult. Uh, it, it, it is an emptying of oneself. It is a looking to the interest of someone else and not just our own, right? Both in the way we do church life together, but also when we step out into the world and are on mission uh, to reach people. And so as your pastor, do I want you to know the gospel? I do, right? It's, it, I hope that's obvious. Like, I want you to know, know it. <laughs> not, not just like have Christian cliches that you can just sort of share with other people and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, I actually want you to know the, the, the truth of the gospel and be able to explain it to someone and be able to have a conversation regarding their ideas and how the gospel brings to bear truth on their own ideas and worldview. I, I, I want you to do that. But I also want us to embody that gospel, to embody that gospel to each other and also to those that we come in contact with around the world, uh, around the, well, yeah, around the world, <laughs> um, in our neighborhoods, in our campuses, in, in our workplaces, in our uh, places where we play, all these places. We are the ones being sent into those places. Uh, places that I probably never will be, right? And every time I send you out, I'm like, man, I sure hope that, that, that they take this and take it somewhere, right? And, you know, and I've got my little places that I can connect with people and share the gospel, but it's only going to be a certain amount of, of folks that I can interact with. And so you are plan A, there is no plan B. This is how we're going to plant this church, <laughs> is, is by being sent by Jesus into the world. Uh, Melanie, this weekend has been um, in oh, I have my phone um, speaking at a retreat, a women's retreat in Massachusetts, and she sent us the the family group chat uh, this little update on how things were going, and how things were going is that last night uh, a young woman who was listening to the teaching and singing and do, doing the, the worship, uh, she came to Melanie and she was like, I want to become a Christian. And so Melanie got to talk with her and pray with her, and, and she professed faith in Christ for the first time. And so she, she t texted that to the, to the group chat, and then she's, she's describing the, the life of this woman. And um, she said three little boys were taken from her and put in foster care because of an abusive partner. Then she overdosed trying to cope with the pain. She has one boy back, the three-year-old, and trying to get the five-year-old twins back now. Her three-year-old's daycare teacher goes to Mill City Church, which is the church that's hosting this retreat, and invited her to come to the retreat. That's how it happens. You know, daycare teacher is interacting with a mom at work and talking to her about her life and, and caring for her and probably praying for her, and then is like, hey, you want to come to our church's retreat? And she's like, yeah, and finds the gospel and come, becomes a Christian, like <laughs> This is how it works. And, and, it, and it may feel kind of, kind of ordinary and slow, and some days it does, it feels slow, but this is, this is how the city is reached. This is how the city of Austin is reached, is, is us 
engaging with people, being sent into the lives of people, and, and, and thinking on, okay, as the Father has sent Jesus, now he has sent me, and I want to incarnate that gospel, right? And it, it is, again, it is plan A. There is no plan B. So is it okay to put a billion-dollar campaign out? I, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. Uh, are we going to do some things around the neighborhood, and we'll volunteer, and, and, and we'll probably do some advertising? It, nothing wrong with that. But when it gets down to it, how, how it, it's going to happen on the ground, it's going to happen all of us being sent into these neighborhoods, into these campuses, into these workplaces, into these places where we play. Amen? Amen. All right. So if you feel um, comfortable professing faith through the Apostles' Creed, I'm asking you to stand, and uh, we're going to profess this. Partly we're doing this so we can learn this, um, and partly it's a good, just a good way for us as a good church to affirm belief. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. God, I, I do pray that this really would be a map to getting to know your depths. That our understanding of theology, that our understanding of the Bible would, would be a means to the end of knowing you, loving you, worshiping you, being transformed by you. And so for each of us in this room, maybe some for the, for the first time, uh, receiving this truth, not merely as intellectual information, but as the center of all reality, trusting and relying on your good gospel that's been given to us through the incarnate Son of God. And we're so grateful for that, Lord. We're so grateful for the many, many implications of that. And we just pray, you, as, as we've sort of meditated on this, that this will help us, Lord, to understand better what it means to follow you with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.